This is the Mysterious Murdochs, a multi-episode podcast brought to you by Bed Crime Stories Podcast in association with Carnage Street. If you haven't yet listened to episodes one through five of the Mysterious Murdochs, you'll want to do that before listening to episode six. Episode six, Stephen Smith, The Crime and the Cover-Up. Part 1. The double homicide of 52-year-old Maggie Murdoch and her 22-year-old son, Paul, on June 7th of 2021, shook South Carolina's low country to the core. Fears that a serial killer was on the loose were only calmed when the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, quickly told the public there was no risk to the community. Two weeks after Maggie and Paul were killed, SLED made a shocking announcement. Based on information gathered while investigating the Murdoch's death, SLED stated it was reopening a cold case from 2015, the unsolved death of Stephen Smith. Once again, the Low Country was rocked. Those living in Hampton had heard the rumors back in 2015. Rumors that involved one of the Murdochs, namely Alex Murdoch's eldest son, Buster. SLED has yet to reveal what that information is, and to say that residents are waiting with bated breath is an understatement. But who was Stephen Smith, and how, if at all, was he connected to the Murdochs? Stephen represents yet another victim who died too soon and in a manner that screams foul play. Let's get started. In small towns all across America, there's typically at least one family that's so well-rooted in the region, so connected to the town's history, that its name graces street signs and buildings. In South Carolina's low country, in the counties of Allendale, Beaufort, Colton, Hampton, and Jasper, that family is the Murdochs. The Murdochs have been associated with the law in those counties since 1920, when Randolph Murdoch Sr. became the solicitor of the 14th Judicial Circuit. In South Carolina, the circuit solicitor is an elected official who's responsible for overseeing the prosecution of all criminal cases. Basically, the solicitor is what other states refer to as the district attorney. Randolph Murdoch Sr. was succeeded in the role of solicitor by his son Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. And Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. was succeeded by his son Randolph Murdoch III. The latter was Alec Murdoch's father. The Murdochs presided over law enforcement for 86 years in the region. In many ways, the Murdochs were law enforcement. The younger Murdochs, also attorneys, worked for the family firm, PMPED, which specialized in personal injury litigation. Many have called the Murdochs a legal dynasty of sorts big fish in a little pond. In 2015, when 19-year-old Stephen Smith was found dead in the middle of a rural road in Hampton County, 
news of his death went on blast throughout the low country. Within hours, it had found its way to the Murdochs and pretty much everyone else in the area. But before we talk about Stephen's death, let's talk about him in life. He was, after all, someone's son and someone's brother. In 2015, Stephen Nicholas Smith was 19 and just on the cusp of discovering his life's path, attractive with a swoop of blonde hair and luminous blue eyes, Stephen could easily have become a successful Instagram influencer. Openly gay, a bold move in rural South Carolina, where that type of thing doesn't tend to sit well with the old establishment, Stephen wore makeup and spent time getting his hair just right. His twin sister, Stephanie, said this about Stephen in a 2020 special. His hair had to be perfect. His makeup had to be perfect. He didn't miss a beat. Stephen's mother, Sandy Smith, with whom Stephen was still living in 2015, has said that her son never came out of the closet because he didn't have to. The family had always known he was gay, and it didn't matter. According to Sandy, Stephen's favorite expression was, I am who I am, and God made me, and God don't make mistakes, end quote. Listen to what else Sandy and Stephanie say about Stephen. Twin, he had a sister, Stephanie. He lived with his mother, Sandy Smith. The daughter said, do you see what I see? I was like, oh my gosh. And there was two. <laughs> Stephen's sister and mother also told 2020 that Stephen had plans to get out of Hampton. Once he started high school, he knew what he wanted. Otherwise, he had plans to get out of Hampton. He was not going to stay there. He was going to get his nursing degree and then work his way up to a medical doctor and go overseas to take care of children who did not have any medical attention. Tragically, Stephen Smith never got the chance to realize any of his life's dreams because in the early morning hours of Wednesday, July 8, 2015, he was found lying dead in the middle of an isolated rural road in Hampton County, South Carolina. Crockettville. Okay. 
7 a.m., a motorist named Ronnie Capers dials 911 to report seeing a white male lying in the middle of Sandy Run Road. Although he alerts the authorities, Capers doesn't stick around at the scene. In a matter of minutes, around 4.07 a.m., police officer Michael Bridges of the Hampton County Sheriff's Office arrives on scene. I say 4.07 p.m., but there are some conflicting reports as to the exact time Officer Bridges arrived. The person lying dead in the road is Stephen Smith. First responders initially believe that Smith has been shot in the head. Thinking it's a homicide, they call SLED to assist at the scene. SLED is the entity in South Carolina tasked with investigating homicides. But when some officers speculate that Stephen may instead be the victim of a hit-and-run accident and not a gunshot, the South Carolina Highway Patrol, or SCHP, is called. The Highway Patrol is responsible for investigating car accidents and disposing of anything that impedes the free flow of traffic. If Stephen's been shot, it's a homicide and SLED will be tasked with investigating the crime. But if Stephen's not been shot, and his injuries are instead due to being hit by a car, then the Highway Patrol will investigate the incident. Note that the Highway Patrol detectives typically do not investigate homicides, and thus may be less skilled in that department than SLED agents. But there are problems with the hit-and-run theory. First, there aren't any skid marks on the road, nor is there broken glass, pieces of a broken mirror, or shards of car debris, the usual things left behind after collisions. Second, Stephen's clothes are intact, and his shoes, although loosely tied, are still on his feet. You see, generally, when a person is struck by a car, the force of impact sends their shoes flying off. Third, Stephen's injuries are not consistent with a hit-and-run accident. He has a 7.25-inch gaping hole on the right side of his forehead, a partially crushed skull, and a partially dislocated shoulder. His head is also bruised and misshapen, which points more toward blunt force trauma. Toxicology reports will later reveal that Stephen was not under the influence that night, so there's little chance that he would have stumbled in a drunken stupor into the middle of the road. By 6 a.m., because there's no evidence of a hit-and-run, the Hampton County Sheriff's Office decides that Stephen's death is due to homicide. At 6.25 a.m., Sergeant Moore of the Highway Patrol arrives on scene and speaks with the Hampton County coroner, 
Ernie Washington. Washington tells Moore that it's a homicide, and he points to the wound on Stephen's head and calls it a gunshot wound, showing Moore the entry point on Stephen's head. The Hampton County Deputy Coroner, Kelly Green, is also on scene, and she shows Moore photos of the body and points to an entry point on Stephen's head and a defensive wound on his hand. Moore asks both coroners if they're sure it's homicide, and they both reply, yes. Now, because the coroners are only basing their conclusions on what they can see from the body as it's lying in the road, their conclusions are not set in stone. A forensic pathologist will later perform an autopsy, and that should show whether or not Smith has been shot. Sergeant Moore walks the scene for himself. Seeing no evidence of a vehicular collision, no car parts or debris, Sergeant Moore clears all highway patrol units from the scene. If it's a homicide, like the coroners are saying, then the case belongs in the hands of sled agents. At 8.25 a.m., sled agents arrive on scene and see that it's been secured with yellow barrier tape. They also note that the victim has been covered with a sheet. One of the agents jots down the following notes. A hole in the skull was located above the victim's right eye. It's still unclear at this time if this hole was caused by a projectile. The victim's right arm was covered in blood, and agents were unable to see any injuries. End quote. The coroner, who's still on the scene, searches Stephen's clothing and finds a car key in his front left pocket. The officers then make a sketch of the scene and include measurements. That sketch is included in this video. The drawing shows a cornfield to the left of the road and Stephen's body lying smack in the middle of the road. It almost looks as if someone deliberately placed him there in the middle of the road in that position, in my opinion. At 9.20 a.m., sled agents are alerted that Stephen's car is on U.S. 601, which is about three miles away from the crime scene. The car is locked, in park, out of gas, and the gas cap is hanging out on the side of the vehicle. The car's battery is functional, but the car won't start, probably because there's little to no gas. Stephen's wallet is found inside the car. Finding the car in this state leads the highway patrol officers to theorize that Stephen ran out of gas and was walking to get help when he was hit by the mirror of a semi-truck. However, that theory really doesn't work with the evidence. Stephen had his cell phone with him, and he was only six miles from home. His mother, Sandy Smith, who knew him better than anyone, is adamant that her son would never have exited his vehicle on a dark rural road like that and tried to walk home. She's certain he would have called someone to pick him up. At 10.30 a.m., Stephen's parents, Joel and Sandy Smith, are notified of their son's death. One can only imagine the horror and grief that hit them upon hearing those words. At around 12.30 p.m., 
a forensic pathologist named Dr. Aaron Presnell, who works at the Medical University of South Carolina, begins an autopsy on Stephen's body. After examining Stephen's head wound, Dr. Presnell determines that it was not caused by a fired projectile. She lists the cause of death as blunt force head trauma due to a motor vehicle crash. Dr. Presnell concludes that Stephen likely died by walking in the road and being struck by a vehicle. She lists the following injuries in her report. A 7.25-inch laceration on the right side of Stephen's forehead, along with bruises on both sides of his forehead. The right side of his skull has multiple fractures, bruising, and contusions. His right eyebrow is cut. His right shoulder is dislocated. He has small cuts on the inside of his left arm. He has cuts and bruises on his right hand. He has cuts on his right arm, including a six-inch irregular cut on the inside of the right arm. He has cuts on his right fingers. Twelve three-inch aggregate of irregular to angulated abrasions on right arm. Blood in his airways. The sled agents are shocked. Dr. Presnell's conclusion means that the case is now out of the hands of the sled agents and back into the hands of the highway patrol detectives. It's been a ping-pong game since Stephen was found. One minute, it's a homicide. The next, it's a hit-and-run accident. Like the sled agents, the highway patrol detectives aren't buying into the pathologist's conclusion. Listen to what these state patrol detectives had to say. There's not When Sergeant Moore calls the coroner, Ernie Washington, and tells him what Dr. Presnell has concluded, Washington tells Moore he has to go with Presnell's ruling, even though he earlier stated that he was certain it was a gunshot wound. Moore then asks Washington where Stephen's body is. Washington states that it's been taken to the People's Roden Funeral Home per the family's wishes. Sergeant Moore immediately calls the funeral home director to ask if he has the clothing Stephen was wearing. The funeral director says the clothes are in a paper bag with the body. Moore instructs him to immediately stop all preparations on the body and cover it up. Moore also sends an officer to pick up the clothing. Note that the evidence chain of custody on Stephen's case was broken at this point when his clothes were left unattended at the funeral home. When Stephen's clothing, including a black Nike short sleeve shirt, a pair of khaki Union Bay cargo shorts, and a pair of blue Airspeed tennis shoes are tested for trace evidence, no automotive paint is found on them. Also included in the testing are some very small, single-layer metallic blue paint chips that were in the bag. When I say small, the paint chips are the size of the width of a pencil tip. And again, the chips were not embedded on Stephen's clothing. They were simply in the bag. 
the detectives find out that Toyota apparently used that color paint on its cars from 1982 to 1988. But before one goes running off to see what type of car people in the Murdoch family may have been driving, remember, the chain of custody was broken on the clothes when they were left unattended at the funeral home. Because of that breach, it's impossible to know where those tiny paint chips came from. Did someone place them in the bag? Sometime that evening, Sergeant Moore calls Dr. Presnell to ask her why she ruled Stephen's cause of death a hit and run. Dr. Presnell tells him that it was not a gunshot wound and no bullet or bullet fragments were found during the x-ray. She also states that it didn't look like a bullet wound in her opinion and that since the body was found in the roadway, she could only theorize that it had to be a motor vehicle that caused Stephen's death. Moore asks Dr. Presnell if she found any glass fragments or other debris or evidence from a motor vehicle on the body, and she replies, no. Moore sends officers back out to the scene to have them search again for any car debris and any other evidence in either direction. The officers search but fail to find any debris. Moore also sends an officer to sit at the scene between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. the next morning to document how many cars drive on that road at that time of the morning. Now, the day Stephen Smith was found deceased was clearly chaotic, with the investigation moving from sled's hands to the highway patrols and back and forth. Having it fall into the highway patrol's hands meant that detectives, who were used to working only on vehicular accidents, would be investigating a crime that many believed was not a hit-and-run, but rather a deliberate homicide. SLED agents were the ones who were seasoned in homicide investigations, not the highway patrol agents. In my opinion, right from the very beginning, Stephen's death was not being investigated by the right entity which meant that it likely wasn't getting investigated as thoroughly and as well as it could have been. Next time on The Mysterious Murdoch, we'll move into the events that occurred the day after Stephen's death. We'll deep dive into the investigation and examine the notes made by various detectives working the case. Notes that detail the rumors that were swirling around Hampton about who might have been involved and what might have happened.